is The Resilient. I'm Alex Kratoski. My name is Elua Arthur, and I am a certified death midwife, an end-of-life planner, and an attorney. Um, I'm a co-founder of Going With Grace, which is an end-of-life planning company, organization, and we serve to support people as they answer the question, what must I do to be at peace with myself so that I may die peacefully? I met Elua earlier this year through a friend. It hadn't been long since I'd had a baby, and midwife and doula were terms I associated with the beginning, not the end. But I immediately got it. The parallels had become really apparent between caring for someone at the start of life and caring for someone at the end, because I'd experienced that recently, too. So death midwives do all of the non-medical support and care for the individual and for the family through the end of life. And then over to the other side, we also support people to have home funerals, uh, to take care of their loved one at home after they've died, to have home funerals, wigs, to wash the body, clothe the body, care for it as they would a newborn baby. Why do you believe that, uh, two questions, first of all, why do you believe that it, it sort of disappeared from use? And secondly, why do you believe that it's mostly women who, who played this role? The concept, I believe, is something that's been around since for time immemorial that has lost um, use in popular culture in today's times, primarily because death has been overtaken by the funeral industry and by hospitals and people in black suits um, and white robes. No more the generally women that come into homes that support the family as a loved one is dying and support the person as they're dying themselves. Historically, it disappeared from use after World War II. There were so many bodies coming back from the war and there weren't enough people to handle them. There weren't, uh, there was a lot of grief, first of all, and there was just such high volume of bodies coming back that the funeral industry really started to take off. Um, people wanted to honor their sons and brothers who had fallen in the war and the funeral industry found a way to grow. They made a lot of money during that time and then it became pretty much commonplace to, for a funeral home to take care of somebody once they died. Uh, men have taken over the funeral industry, the business of death, but women are still doing the, the, the nurture of death, if you have it. Can you describe a day in your life? I generally wake up without an alarm because that's sweet. Um, immediately write down some thoughts. Um, whatever came up as I was sleeping, I dreamed pretty intently. And um, check to see what happened over the course of the night while I was sleeping, if anything major happened. Check in with who's still alive and their caregivers. Um, and then check off tasks that need to be done for the day um, for who is no longer with us. I spend a lot of time on the phone calling and checking in what's the status, where is so-and-so today. Um, and then also, how's a caregiver? How are you doing today? Checking in to see who's still alive. You know, for, for so many people who don't deal with this end of life, literally this end of life and also this end of life mm -hmm. scenario, can you see yourself developing a distance or are you still deeply, deeply involved? There's a distance in the language, right? But I feel very involved. You know, I throw death around but it knocks people upside the head sometimes when I say, and I don't even realize, um, 
I feel deeply involved. This isn't the first time you've been the caregiver of strangers. You have had a tremendously rich life supporting people. Can you describe what you were doing before you decided to become a death midwife? Sure. I spent my the first 10 years of my career as a, an attorney at the Legal Aid Foundation of Los Angeles. First through the government benefits when people were at, you know, nothing left and looking for some support for the gov- from the government, had their benefits taken away and were seeking to get them reinstated or something, primarily in food stamps, because when there's no money for food, things really go haywire. After a short while there, I moved over into the family law unit where I supported domestic violence victims and sexual assault survivors um, with children make the transition from the abusive home into self-sufficiency. And I did a lot of restraining orders, child custody orders, uh, divorces, all types of plans to keep women and children safe. I practiced that for about seven years and then briefly transitioned into nonprofit development. Groups of people that had a great idea for doing something for the community, low income communities in LA. So charter schools, art schools in LA. So I helped build charter schools for a few years after I burned out from doing the domestic violence work. How did you realize you were burning out? What were some of the signs? There wasn't a moment, there was a series of them. There was uh, maybe about three months where the idea had already started jumping around in there. I'd heard the term burnout and thought, I don't know what that's about. These people clearly don't know me. Um, And then after a while, just like going to work felt more burdensome. And the work where it used to energize me was starting to drain me. It was, I started to dread a new case or the work around it or the story even. Like my connection to the, the people was starting to, it was starting to suffer. And when that when that became an element of it, I realized I had to get out because I'm, you know, I care about people primarily. That is what is so rich about this life for me is my connection to other humans. And when I began to see that as a burden, I it was time to go. So many people, though, stick with jobs because they feel that they can't or stick with life decisions because they feel that they can't disappear. They can't start over. What did you rely upon in yourself that gave you the sense that I can do this? I can go somewhere else. This is not working for me right now. Where did that strength come from? The idea that I'd be useless otherwise, that I wouldn't actually be able to be of any good to anybody if I could not fill my own cup. If the cup was empty, there would be nothing to give. And I'd been trying that. I'd been working on that model for some time, but it just, it wasn't working anymore. I wasn't able to give anymore. I think of my life as one of service. Um, I was put on this earth to be used up and, and I want to be used up. I just have to have something to give. <laughs> if there's nothing to give, then that's the point. Talk to me about where you were in your mind, sort of psychologically, the days before you met the woman on the bus? In the days before, I had been filled with immense gratitude for being able to appreciate clouds and the sun and rain and grass again. Because in the time up to then, I'd been severely depressed. Had you been there before? Never. I didn't realize that it was possible for me to get there. I think most people in my life were surprised that I'd gotten to that point, like where I just look outside and find no joy. 
look at people, see them smiling and wonder why I couldn't connect with it myself. At an utter loss for where that spark had gone. You know, my mom has always said that I was bit by the happy bug when I was born, but that happy bug took a vacation because it was wholly absent, completely absent. I could still crack a smile, but gray, everything was gray. I didn't even wear much color, which is rare for me. Elua decided to go to Cuba. Travel alone is one of those times when I've really been able to connect with who I am and what I value and, you know, the juicy parts of life. So you're looking at the sky, you're seeing the clouds, you're feeling intense gratitude, and you have an encounter. Tell me about that encounter. I'd been out the night before. I had some rum in a limestone cave with a young woman who was fiercely determined to find me a boyfriend because she did not understand why I was traveling Cuba by myself. Uh, We had a really fun night, but I drank too much and almost overslept the following morning. But I needed to return her scrunchie to her. She'd given me a scrunchie to put my hair up so I'd look really pretty for this boyfriend she was bringing me. And since, you know, there's such value placed on items in Cuba, and so I wanted to return the scrunchie to her. So ran through the streets with my camera because I also want to take her photo running like hell through the streets to get to this woman, return to scrunchie before I made it to the bus stop. As I'm running through the street, a car almost hit me. It came dangerously close, so close that I put my hands, like slapped my hands down on the hood and thought, oh my God, get your stuff together, girl. Like you're about to die for a scrunchie. Found the woman, returned the scrunchie, took a photo, ran back, Got my stuff on a bicycle taxi, made it to the bus stop, stood in the line, out of breath, frantic, and there's a woman standing in front of me. She had a great tattoo on her arm. I asked her what it was. She showed it to me. It was a quill pen and said she was a writer. Um, And then we struck up a conversation. She said she was about to get on the bus that I was about to get on, but I was standing in the wrong line. I was in the line to load up the luggage, yet I need to be in the other line for the tickets. So she promised to look after my things I went to the other line and tried to get a ticket. There was some fuss going on over there. I think the bus was oversold. Meanwhile, I look back and this woman is dragging both my bags and her own onto the bus. The bus driver, one of the stewards of the bus was like yelling at her, telling her to take the stuff off the bus. And she's like dropping things and tripping and just generally making a big old mess. It was funny. I didn't know her for anything, but it really made me, it tickled me a little bit. Like, what is going on here? Finally, I got my ticket, made it on the bus. I was the last person. We sit down, the last two seats, and um, she's like, I'm so glad you got on the bus. I said, me too. She's like, I made a total ass of myself for you. I was like, I knew there was something going on because that was, and she was like, yeah, I made a big show, but I'm so glad you're here. Um, So we started laughing and giggled for seven hours started talking also very seriously after a few of those hours um, but giggled for quite some time and seven hours in was her stop she was going to San Fuegos I think I was going all the way to Santiago and um, she said this might be a little strange but do you mind if I just come with you and I said not at all come along little doggy so we kept talking And she told me about her journey and she was trying to see as much of the world as she could because she had a uterine cancer diagnosis. It was pretty severe. She'd had five surgeries in the previous year and a half or so. Um, 
was dealing with serious, you know, thinking about motherhood and even a future. She was trying to imagine what a future would look like if there would be one for her because that's how severe her illness was. Um, She'd been advised not to leave by doctors and everybody, but she wanted to see a few key places before she died. Um, Through our talk, it became apparent that her rally against death, her, her resistance to it, seems to be fueling her illness rather than providing any sort of relief. Like she was, it seemed to me that she was so afraid to die. She was, that she wholly constricted against the, the idea of death and was living from that place rather than like an ease and settling into it. Uh, we talked a lot about death on that long bus ride. We did brief meditations on it, but really just talking to her and try to understand what it was, what she thought death would mean, um, what she thought her life's purpose was, what if she felt she had completed it. She has been taking care of her old elderly grandparents, um, so the end of their lives and what that means. And, you know, just a lot about death. What does death mean and what does how does it inform how you live today? And somewhere along the bus ride, looked outside, clear as day clear as day, looked at the beautiful clouds and the bright blue sky and was very clear that I was going to work with people that were dying. Very clear. It became even more so when she discovered that the woman on the bus had been in the car that had almost hit her 14 hours earlier. And I thought, holy balls. (laughs) What is this life? Uh, It was a beautiful moment. Ilua had her purpose but it took an episode in her own life before she realized where her calling would actually take her. So I had decided I was working with people that were dying, but hadn't yet found death midwifery at the time my brother-in-law became ill. I'd applied to several psychology programs. I thought I was going to be a therapist. Um, I was either going to get a PhD or LMFT to work in death and spirituality in particular. I'd been accepted into a program but it wasn't quite the right fit. And so I was still looking for my path through death work. So by the time my brother-in-law received a terminal diagnosis, it was, you know, he was in New York. My sister, everybody was in New York. I was in LA, but picked up, packed up bags, a small one, because I didn't know how long I'd stay, but went to go see if I could be of support somehow. And that turns out there was a very big role for me. Uh, my niece, who was four at the time, um, was in the midst. My mom was living there. Peter, my brother-in-law, his parents also came and they were present with us for a while. And my sister, of course, her husband. So there was the death work. There was the sister role. There was the aunt role. Um, there was also friend because he, I've known him since I was 21 years old and he was a brother. I never had one, but he was my brother. She did what she had to do spinning the plates of caregiver and creating the emotional space of death worker. It was a delicate balance at all times. There was so much that needed to get done. There was so much doing around my niece, around his illness, around doctor's appointments and medication. I was also his medication manager. So around the medication, um, you know, getting him physically from one place to the next, making sure he's comfortable. His parents' needs, they're also quite elderly. They're in their mid-80s at the time. So his parents' physical needs, um, and then holding the emotional space for everybody as well. It was a perfect swirl of all those things, of 
both bereaved and death worker. The day that he died was that swirl. I was taking care of my niece at the time. We were at the hospital. We said goodbye to him for the evening. Um, he couldn't really speak, but he whispered a lot of things to me. Um, he asked me to take care of them, and he said that I had a good heart and that he appreciated me and that he loved me. And I said, I love you too. And he said, but I'm tired. And I said, that's okay. You can rest. That's you rest now. I didn't realize what he was actually saying. Um, but he fell asleep shortly after I left with my niece. And I woke up in the morning, took her to school, got her ready for school, took her to school, went to the hospital, stayed at the hospital all day. Um, went back to go pick her up from school, went home, did homework, dinner, bath, ready for bed. One of my sister's friends came over to the house. Um, once she went to sleep, my sister's friend came, stayed for the night. I went back to the hospital along with whatever my sister, my mom, and his parents needed. Uh, I think those medications, like his mom needed eye drops, his dad, denture cream. It was like things that they needed just to be there. And wine for my sister, brought wine. Um, so that night, um, we eventually fell asleep. He hadn't woken up for a while. He hadn't been up since the night before. And it was almost Christmas, and he loved Christmas. So his brother had actually sent a care package that had a, you know, a Santa hat. So the hat was on him all day long. Um, there was Christmas music playing. Um, his breathing was starting to change. Um... I was clear that there was a profound shift happening uh, early in the morning, maybe 3 a.m. or so. Uh, we, we, you know, we're sleeping in chairs in the hospital. Uh, we were woken up by his mother, who was like, wake up, wake up, wake up, wake up, wake up. We all woke up, went around him. I stood at his feet and kept nudging them. And I now understand that that's where it the soul releases first from but I was at his feet and just rubbing them and actually in the days prior he kept asking me to rub his feet and so when we're standing around his bed and the time is ticking slowly I immediately went to his feet and was rubbing them rubbing them rubbing them they'd already changed color long since changed color um, and we stayed at his feet and sang some hymns and uh, how great thou art his favorite and sang and sang and rubbed his feet and his breathing. You know, there were moments where I, in my head, wanted him to take another breath so bad. But at the same time, was I wanted him to be free because he'd been in pain for so long and the loss of control and all those things were so difficult for him to, to come to terms with. Um, so I, I wanted him to be free but I also, the gravity and the finality of it was about to be really, really heavy if he didn't take another breath. Um, but at one point he didn't, he didn't take another one. That gravity, that finality, that sort of juxtaposition between desperately wanting somebody to go and desperately wanting them to stay, you see that a lot does it get easier never 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 there's just never I always I feel helpless in that scenario because 
I I can't say I understand, but it's understandable the desire to want them to stay so bad and to just one more. But then also the the surrender once it's finally time to let them go. The the surrender is a sweet spot though, you know, when they finally do let go. Um, but up in every moment up until then it's really tough. It's really tough for everybody around, you know? Everybody's knowing that something really, really, really big is coming and not quite being ready for it. Yet also knowing that it must come at some point. So how can you train for facing something as heavy as that moment? So it's through an organization called Sacred Crossings um, with this magical woman named Olivia who has been doing this work a long time. And... It's a three-part training. starts with conscious dying, where you ask yourself a bunch of tough questions about what you believe about death and um, how, how once people live in awareness of death, how that changes and informs the way that they live and also the way that they die. What kinds of questions? We get to write about what we, how we want our final moments to be, um, what once the moment of death actually happens what we believe is happening and looking down on everybody else once our death has occurred we look at life support issues uh, quality of life issues uh, hospitals my definition of quality of life and quality of death what quality of death means to me and also questions uh, well ideas about not placing my own judgments and my belief system on other people in their tough moments that's the hardest of it if you ask me you know I have some pretty strong views about things but I recognize that throughout my work everybody comes to that place in and through a bunch of different paths and and I get to respect everybody's no matter how different from mine it may look of course there are also practicalities after the first part, conscious dying, we move on to after-death care of the body. In most states, especially in California at least, you can keep a person at home for as long as you want. Surprise, you can keep a person at home, provided that they are taken care of. What we do is we um, place dry ice under the body, and as long as the dry ice is changed periodically, the person can stay at home. Yeah, I haven't seen anybody that wanted to keep the body at home longer than three days maybe four. It takes about that time, I think, for everybody to get used to the fact that the soul spirit is no longer in the body. And at that point, it's just tissue and flesh. And then um, at that point, people are generally ready to release the body. And thus, it can go to a funeral home if they're going to do a traditional funeral or crematory for cremation. How do you prepare yourself for going into a room when you know that a death is about to occur? Um, Generally, I'm running late. I'm getting better at running early, at least on time, um, such that I don't arrive in a hurry. But before I get out of the car, I remind myself of the work, place my hand on my heart, remind myself of why I'm there and the fact that there's something profound about to happen and that we're entering into that very, very small space between life and death that um, is... Uh, one of those major markers in people's lives yeah and that it is an honor to be there with them Um, a privilege most people don't ever get to experience that yet I'm invited into that space as I place my hand on the door again a reminder um, a lot of deep breaths 
um, clearing space, breathing in into my third eye and also breathing into the heart center. Um, yeah. And oils. I use uh, most of the time a frankincense and myrrh. That's what they brought, baby Jesus, and gold. I just like the way it smells. But it is quite fitting, don't you think? Uh, so I dab some oil on. Because uh, smelling it kind of reminds me, brings me back very quickly. And then step inside. And, well, I can't say most of the time it's calm. But, like, 65% of the time it's calm. Yeah. Like, there's an ease in the spirit in the air. And then the rest of the time, there's a high swirl of emotions and a high vibration happening. But that's generally not coming from the dying person. Yeah, it's coming from family. It feels to me like it, the intensity of experience is something that um, that you thrive on, whether it is helping survivors of domestic violence or sexual assault, whether it's helping children, whether it's helping people in their gravest moments facing the unknown and the transition to the end of life. This intensity of emotion, how do you how do you counteract that? How do you create balance in your life? <laughs> oh boy. If you asked my sisters, they'd probably say I don't have much balance. I like silence. I like it when it's quiet. I'd say that that's probably what I do most to counterbalance. When there's a lot of noise, either environmental um, or a lot of talking, it just makes me a little wonky. I need the silence because I do operate, or I can operate, I can, you know, and reach those like pinnacle of emotion and everything that it takes a lot of quieting down. Uh, it's been developed. I've been working on it a while, but through meditation practice, I dance, I exercise. Exercise is really, really important to me. Um, I run mostly. So wonderfully meditative, nothing but me and my breath and my feet. You describe a lot of things in terms of releasing from them I mean you you deal with big releases you deal with people releasing themselves but also it seems that you've incorporated that kind of language into your own life do you see life as a series of little deaths <laughs> or you know is that how you how you cope yes there's little deaths happening all the time I mean my car battery dies, you know, and we use the term so flippantly, but it does, right? And then we release from that one. There's a big catastrophe when the car battery dies. Maybe you're parked at Vons and you have an appointment and now you can't make it. How are you going to respond in that moment? Either I get so frustrated about what it is that's happened and bitch and curse and kick the car tire, or I call AAA, get somebody to jump it or have them bring a new battery, make some phone calls, arrive to my appointment late. Just this is just what happened. You know, there's so many ways in which I can respond to all the tiny deaths that happen around me every day. And I just choose to surrender to it, like actually release what has happened. It's a practice, though. I'm not. I've been, I've been working on it. I've been working on it affirmatively. Where do you where do you wish to take it? Where do you wish it to lead you into a space where I can be as effective and as clear a channel for support as I can be. I, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty clear 
that in a few years, death is going to be a regular national conversation. And I like, I believe that I'm going to be a part of that conversation such that the work that I've started now with Going With Grace um, is becoming a part of the way that we do things. When will you stop? When I die. Hopefully not even then. I hope that the work continues after I die. Thank you. Thank you. The Resilient is a podcast about powerful people like you and me. It's brought to you by Flower. Because life happens.